0: Listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Well, good morning. Grateful that you guys are all here this morning. Um, we have been journeying through the book of Romans, and we find ourselves at a, a real pivotal moment in the context of Paul's argument throughout, really, the first 11 chapters. And he's done a lot of different elements to continue to convince the church at Rome of some very specific things. One is that God is always faithful, that no matter what we see in the circumstances around us, there's a, an ability for our hearts to be Just rooted in the reality that God is continuing to keep his promises and will always be faithful. Even in the moments where our hearts would accuse God of not coming through, it doesn't ultimately stand the test of time or the truth of God's word. He's also been working to clarify the truth of the gospel, meaning that this rescuing reality of God's pursuit of lost people, bringing them into an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ is near and dear to the heart of God. It's it's the mission for which he sent his son, that there's an active pursuing of the God of the universe to save sinners lost in their sin. And he's doing that by helping us realize the substance and significance of the cross of Jesus Christ. Meaning that the death of the second person of the Trinity on the cross and and that payment that was paid for the sins of the world is sufficient to draw and to invite those who are in desperate need of recognizing God's grace and rescue from their sin into an intimate and vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. But he's also been very convinced that that's not a one-time deal. Not in the sense that we need to be saved every day and and have this sense of God's eternity saving us. What he is saying is that there is an element of that gospel working itself out in our lives on a regular basis. That, That we are drawn to sin. We are drawn to our own appetites and that we need consistent rescue. So God Has saved us, that there's a a sense and a guarantee that we are preserved in that relationship with Him and can't lose that. So we are saved, but God is also saving us. That there's this recognition of the need for the gospel on a daily basis. And with those two things very clearly in line, one of the other applications is there's a desire to unify the church. That if we understand God is faithful and that God Rescues lost sinners and draws them into intimacy with himself, then the basis of those two very things are the reality of how the church can be unified. And so when the church is not unified, you get an indication that something's maybe a bit off. Maybe there are many who are questioning the faithfulness of God and feeling like they can take it on their own and, and figure out how to fix the problems of the world. Or maybe there's elements of losing sight of the truth of the gospel and our need for a daily rescue from Jesus himself, a daily awareness of our need for the truth of who Christ is. And so in the process of those things, he's done it and painted this picture from the lenses over these last few chapters of the nation of Israel and the Gentiles, so those who are all non-Jews, trying to give them a perspective that you got these two very different elements and individuals and people groups from very different places, both in their understanding of God as well as their experience with God, and they're all meshed in the context of this church at Rome. And at times things go okay, but like any time you get a group of people together, there's times where things begin to bubble to the surface. Some perspectives and thoughts about how things should be done or whether or not one person or a group of people have more value than another group of people. It's interesting to me that humanity hasn't changed in thousands of years, right? If you boil down church conflict or even conflict as a whole, that, that's what you get, right? There's a sense in which some feel like they've got it better figured out than others or some are unaware of seeing what needs to be seen and, and all of this blindness tends to surface and produce a level of conflict amongst people. The church at Rome is no different. The church at Park Springs is no different. And so when Paul jumps into Romans 11, he he continues to reiterate the significance of how often we don't see all that God is doing. Our scope, our minds, our vision is limited to current circumstances. I.e. last week, the first Ten verses of this chapter were Paul communicating that the church at Rome in some ways was panicking. That they were uncertain about whether or not the loved ones and the people that they knew would ever come to faith. And in the process of that, the suggestion was, well, God's not really faithful then because he promised all of these things to the Jewish nation. He was convinced that God was going to fulfill all these promises. And in this current moment, it seems as though he's not that there are those who are part of the Jewish nation that aren't believing. They're not just not believing, but they're rebelling and rejecting Jesus as the Messiah vehemently. So they stand in opposition to the real truth of Christ and what he's doing. And so the concern is, well, if God's not working and doing what he said he's going to do and he's not faithful to them, i.e. the question is, will he be faithful to us? And so there's this fear that gets to be generated and, the Church at Rome, and a sense of worry about whether or not God's going to do what He said He'll do or be who He said He was. And I would suggest to you this morning that that's a place, often where you and I live. I think that that can be a descriptor of circumstances that intrude into our life that you and I can't anticipate and/ or predict issues that tend to mount and surface, situations that seem inexplicable when we hear about the goodness and kindness of God, when you and I as a church family seeing that God is faithful and he's always kind and always loving towards his people, and yet we find ourselves in fractured relationships where we've been treated poorly, where we worry about a loved one who doesn't seem to be doing well, or a wayward wayward person or a wayward child that doesn't no Christ. Our emotions tend to capture our attention, and we begin to wonder, is God who he said he was? So Paul's going to carry through that argument in the next few verses that Ozzie read for us this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them with me. If you have them on your smartphones, please draw it up, because I really want to draw our attention to the, the very words that God is saying. And I, I want to kind of lay my cards on the table this morning. I think the essence. The essence of this section of Scripture is to do one very significant thing in your life and mine. And I think that the reason why Paul wrote these things is to produce hope. I think what ends up happening, the very thing that's assaulted when suffering mounts or confusion is a part of our experience and we don't know all of the different elements of what God can do or should do or would do, and we hear his word, but our experience isn't lining up with the truth of God's word, we we wonder if this could ever work out in a way that would actually allow us to see the the joy in the perfect plan of God. And I think what Paul's going to do through the lenses of the nation of Israel and his consistent, sovereign, providential work in the lives of the Jewish nation, serve as a window or a lens. So the tip of the spear is to say, yes, God still has a plan for the nation of Israel, 100%. And that's where he's going to move us to in the context of this portion of scripture. For both Jew and Gentile, he wants them to understand that God's not finished working and that's a great theological point that I think is important for us to understand. But why does Paul do that? Why is it recorded in the pages of Scripture for you and for me? Because it's the same thing for us. God's not finished yet with your story or mine, or the wayward child who's walked away from the faith, or the loved one who is absolutely in utter rebellion. To God who is convinced that God does not exist or the, the neighbor or the coworker, or the person in the world or the universe that is just absolutely 100 convinced that Jesus is just a farce, not true and not working, just absolutely vehemently opposed to the truth of who Christ is and actually even opposed to truth in general. The hope that gets built in this text is, hold on a minute, God's not done. God's doing things in numerous ways. And so hope begins to get generated when we get a bigger view of God. It's been said way back in the day, I suppose, that a picture is worth a thousand words. And I think it's true. If you look through some of the huge pictures throughout history, you're able to see these moments and in the process of that, just remind ourselves of these monumental moments and views of history. Many of us who grew up during 9-11 could see a picture of planes hitting the World Trade Center. And, and we're, we're aware, we're brought back to that moment. We're reminded of our feelings and the reality of what take, took place. National Geographic had posted a, a picture when the whole refugee crisis happened in Syria of a young little kid washing up on shore. We're reminded of those moments, our feelings and our understanding of the world around us comes into a stark view when we look at those pictures. I think Paul would want to tell us that one Christ, the Christ, is worth a thousand pictures. Here's what I mean. I think what Paul wants us to do is have a a wider, bigger view that when we can look at pictures and see the scope of what God's doing and and what's happening in our world, we, we interpret those things through the lenses of our own feelings and our own emotions. And I think what Paul's doing in the church at Rome and even in the church here and even in your own particular heart is that a view of Christ, an accurate view of Christ, actually directs our feelings rather than our feelings directing our view of Christ. That Christ, the gospel, is actually the only interpreter, the accurate interpreter of the world around us. It's the source of truth, the source of hope, the reason why we could look at the canvas of the world and be like, man, things are absolutely a mess. And then we could wander into the pages of scripture and we could remind ourselves things are absolutely a mess. I can't wait to see what God's going to do. Like, that's the, that's the backside of what Paul is getting at here in the church at Rome and even in our minds is that the scope of all of human history is held in the hands of God. Colossians tells us as much that all things were created through him and for him, that in everything, Paul says to the church at Colossae, Christ might be preeminent, that he might be first. So how does Christ build hope in Romans 11? Well, It builds hope by us understanding, seeing, experiencing the fullness and sufficiency of who Christ is in our daily life. A bigger picture of Christ is what embeds in our lives that very hope. So if you will, look with me in Romans 11, and we'll be starting in verse 11. And these first few verses, I think, are abundantly clear in terms of what he's beginning to give us as an indication of how we can see that the truth of God's word and the power of Jesus Christ begin to generate hope. Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the, their full inclusion mean. So here's what Paul is beginning to address is he's saying, look, let's just look at the scope of what's taking place. There are rebellious, is a rebellious nation that has chosen to believe and reject Jesus as Messiah. They had all the promises of God. They had all the indications. The Old Testament has tilled the soil of their heart to say Jesus was the anticipated Messiah. This is the guy that you were waiting for. This is the second person of the Trinity descending from heaven, coming to save his people from their sins. This is him. And yet because he didn't meet the criteria that they thought that they wanted him to meet this restoration of national power this hope that somehow in some way they would be brought back up to being that which was significant that he came as a humble man born of a virgin born in a manger he did not meet their expectations and so willingly they have rejected the truth of the messiah And in the process of that, what Paul does is pull us all the way back and say, say what? He says, here, like I am working in the midst of that very rebellion. It is their actual rebellion that has opened the door for all the non-Jews to come in and be part of the family of God. And in and of itself, that seems like an incredible miracle. But what Paul is asking here is, well, they made their decision. They made their bed. Now they got to lie in it. Is there any hope for those who have rejected Christ when they've been... Living and breathing the covenants of God in the Old Testament. Really, I think the essence of the question is have they just gone too far? Have they made too many bad decisions? Is a life that's filled with regret and rejection of the Messiah pretty much just their lot in life? Have they stumbled that they might just fall? And Paul says, no. Paul says, that's not how this works. Like in the process of God's sovereign, providential care, the reason why hope can be embedded in every circumstance at every moment in life is because God is working in ways beyond what we can see. And so he says, certainly, their rejection of the Messiah has allowed for the inclusion of people that were non-Jewish. But wait, what much more would it mean for their full inclusion? To be how much more could we stand back and look in the canvas of human history and realize that, yes, there are these people that have fully rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and yet God still works. Why? Because it near and dear the heart of God is that there's a deep pursuing concern and passion for the lost. There's a work that he is doing in a way beyond what you and I can think and feel. So let's, let's drill down just a moment and see how applicable, we can make that. Certainly, I think Paul gives us a lens of how God works, and he's doing it through the nation of Israel and saying, just wait, I got plans more than you can imagine. There's going to be some bigger things going on beyond what you can see. I'm not done working in the midst of the Jewish nation and the people of God, but I'm also not done working in you. And I'm also not done working in those around the world that have 100% rejected Jesus as the Christ. There's never a moment where yourself or me or the ones we love or the neighbors we live beside or the workers that we work with or the bosses that are vehemently against the reality of the authority and sufficiency of Christ. There's never a moment where they've gone too far where the rescue of the truth of the gospel cannot begin the transforming work in their life to to see change and to draw them into intimacy with you and ultimately intimacy with Christ. That there are those who are so far off that can become the people of God merely through profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Change, intimacy with God happens in an instant. And it comes Through belief, belief in the reality of who Jesus is. This is Paul coming from the standpoint of his own story, I think, in many ways. Israel, light, Jew of Jews, persecutor of the church, probably one of the most knowledgeable religious leaders of the time, working in incredible ways to persecute the church. And the uniqueness of the truth of the gospel is this. That the very people that Paul had a hand in martyring will be applauding when Paul, as Paul made his way into heaven, excited that the gospel could even transform the most aggressive, those who were so against the reality of Jesus. Paul had his moment, his experience with God pursuing and transforming and changing his life. And so it's never too late for anyone, they're never too far gone. And there's always hope in every situation because God is doing more than you and I can see. So I think the first part of this section, Paul is saying, current sin is not necessarily eternal identity. That, that the current place that people find themselves in, even you and I, isn't necessarily an indication of where, where they'll spend eternity, because God is doing a deeper work than you and I can imagine. That he works not just based on human experience, but according to his perfect will. That he's doing things more than you and I can ask or imagine. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that I think this is Paul giving us a very clear illustration to the church at Roman, to you and I, how Romans 8:28 and 29 work. For God works out all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's saying, like, there are things that God is doing that are good, and he's working it out in innumerable and amazing ways, so much so that in the most dark and desperate of situations, you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, can still have hope. Why? God is always faithful. He's always good. And he's doing things beyond what you and I can see. No one is too far gone. No one is outside the scope of God's pursuing, active love, because God pursues the lost, and I think that that's where He's going to lead us next. Is that often we have a tendency to forget where we've been and what we've been rescued from, and so Paul is going to continue to carry out this illustration for us in verse thirteen, and here's what he says: "That I'm speaking to you Gentiles, in as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry." in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For their rejection means reconciliation of the world. What will their full acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are its branches. So I think Paul is communicating that here's what you get. You get an indication of the heart of God. And the heart of God, indicated in Romans chapter 11, is that God is always focused on salvation. There's always a perpetual pursuit of those that are lost to be drawn into the family of God. It's clear, even in the context of Jesus' ministry, what did he say? I came to what? Seek and save the lost. He did not say, I came to make those who were already righteous more righteous, I didn't come to tell the church that they're doing a great job and just to be better people. I did not come to be able to just make good people better people. I came that individuals would come to an understanding of their lostness and that sin wrecks people's lives. That it makes a mess of nations and cultures. That sin destroys and Satan devours. I came to rescue And to seek and save the lost, of which you and I are them. You see, I think that's where Paul is going to draw us to next is this indication because there's contention within the church at Rome. They're fighting in some different ways, or at least there's some level of gossip taking place where the Gentiles at this moment feel like they're more significant and more valuable than the Jews because God has let them in and the Jews had screwed it up. And so there's this sort of bubbling up of pride and value and significance. And what Paul's going to do is give us an indication of our own human condition. Once we feel like we're in, there are ways in which our human feelings get distorted where we feel like we're in because we're better. And Paul is going to say, nay, nay, it don't work that way. That's what we need to guard against is that if we're consistently reminded that God is always focused on salvation and that God is rescuing and seeking and saving the lost and that the gospel is what's consistently rescuing us from ourselves on a daily basis, we should never forget what we've been rescued from. Should never miss the reality of why and how God in his infinite grace saw fit in his mercy, not because of anything we've done, but only to display his glory to the world, that he would rescue a sin sick sinner like myself. I have no merit. There was nothing about me that God looked down and said, That's a good one. I'll, I'll save him and I'll throw some other ones back. That's not how it works. Your salvation is to display the glory of God as, as is mine. We don't get to stand here with the recognition of somehow in some way that pride wells up in our life and said, oh, look, I must have been, there must have been something special about me, and that's why God saved me, saying that the entire world is created by the God of the universe and that the giftings and the power and the work is all given to us by the Spirit, and he's the one that gets the glory, and so we are the one who are rescued and pride is never a result of our salvation. So here's where he goes. Um, Andrew Murray describes it this way. I'll give you this and then I'll read the text. But Andrew Murray describes humility as this. Humility is nothing but the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. The disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. All. I think often what Paul is doing in the book of Romans, specifically in this chapter, is to put people's hearts in check. Anytime you and I would stand at any place and feel that we're more significant than someone else, we need to be checked. <laughs> we, we need to be in some ways dressed down and realizing that what God has done in our life is for his glory and you and I stand on the same ground at the foot of the cross, we are those who've been rescued by Jesus, by his grace, for his glory. So here's where Paul takes it to the church. And he doesn't tend to mince words as we've gotten used to with Paul. He becomes very, very clear in verse 17. It said, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, here's, here's the, the real penetrating indictment against the church and specifically the Gentiles, Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And then you will say, branches were broken off so that we might be grafted in. And that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note. Then the kindness and severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but kindness to you. Provided that you continue in kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what? is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted in to its own olive tree? Now, I'll admit, (laughs) there's sections of this text that I think are a bit jolting. The 22 and 23 are giving this indication of saying, you better shape up or God will cut you out. I mean, that's how it feels when we read this text. And I think what Paul is doing is just giving us an indication of not that you and I need to sense that our relationship with God is somehow not stable and if we don't perform to some sort of level that God is just going to cut us off. What he's suggesting or communicating very clearly here is that the faith that we have received as a gift from God will endure to the end as we continue to realize that God is continuing to grow us into intimacy with him. J.D. Greer said it this way. He said, um, once saved, always saved. Once saved, always following. I think that's true. That there's a sense of what's embedded, that you and I will have those moments of struggle. We'll have those mountaintop and valley experiences, but the goal is to continue to look to the truth of the gospel, gospel recognizing we we daily and regularly need rescue. He he also said it this way. Maybe it's a bit more catchy. Let me see if I can get it right. Uh, I'll just read it, whatever. My <laughs> mind's not working the way that it always does. Faith that fizzles from the finish was flawed from the first. <laughs> there it is. Say that three times fast. Fla- faith, see, I can't even start right. That's terrible. Faith that was flawed, that f- it's flawed. Faith that flaws at the fi- flaw finish. Okay, let's read it one more time. Faith that fizzles at the finish was flawed from the first. And so what he's saying really is I think he's giving us this indication that as we recognize the very dark areas that we find ourselves navigating in the context of life, those moments that seek to steal our hope and rob us of our joy, those moments that seem uncertain, insurmountable, and that we would say to ourselves, nothing is ever going to change. You and I have been there. I've, I've looked at individuals and I've thought to myself, they will never change. Change. And then the conviction from the Holy Spirit comes in and says to me, How dare you? How dare you minimize the reality of the gospel and what God can do in a person's life? Because God done the same thing in yours. And that's part of the indictment against the Gentiles in the church at Rome. Is that there was some budding pride in thinking, yeah, they screwed it up, but look at us, we've got it right. We've figured it out, when in reality, the basis for our hope is not that we figured it out, but that daily we need Jesus. We need the truth of the gospel to be at work in our life. So let me suggest to you what Paul is saying in this section, is that humility, not pride, is the only response of God's actions towards us. That as God is working, our only response to God's work is humility, recognizing that it is because of his grace and not our own merit that God has worked that there's a sense of a a posture before one another and before the work of God that allows us to express ourselves with humility. It's the very nature of what the gospel brings to our attention. We can go and share the life-transforming power of the gospel with the world around us, not as though those who have figured it out and said, you gotta do this because I did it and look how I figured it, look how right I am. It's the posture of communicating, look, God has changed me and my story is such that there is no reason he should have. And yet he's done things beyond what I can ask or imagine. And all I want is for you to know the hope that I have. I think that's what Peter talks about in his epistle. Be prepared to give an answer for what? An answer to every debate and make sure you're able to parse every truth? Certainly we wanna know the truth of God's word. But are are we willing to give an answer? Are we even prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have? I mean, let me ask you this way. (laughs) Do you have hope? Hope for the work of Christ in your delicate and difficult situations? Hope for the antagonistic and uh, adversarial world around us that seeks to just want to convince us that the truth of God's word no longer has any bearing on our, Life at all as a society? The 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 sense that somehow in some way things just continue to progressively get worse? And and how often have has my heart and your heart been ready to just disregard the world as it stands and says, I'm out? And <laughs> it's only getting worse. Do you? Do I have hope that God can revive human hearts? Do you have hope that God can change? People, do you have hope that God can still change you? Romans 11 would say, heck yeah, amen and amen. All day long, I know I need change. And no matter how dire the situation, because God is doing things beyond what I can ask or imagine, and working in ways beyond what I can see, I have hope, hope, hope. Because I know that God's plan is always accomplished. It is not as though he looks at society and says, that didn't work. Let me make some adjustments. (laughs) God's not making adjustments. God's displaying his glory. So the question for us as a church is, do, do we trust him? And in the process of trusting him, is that hope being built, that the proclamation of the gospel can have an impact in your life and in the world around us? Are we willing to share and show in humility the life-transforming power of the gospel? Jared's going to preach on this next week. I'm really excited about it. But I want to just give a prelude because I love what he begins to communicate. I'm going to try not to steal his thunder. But here's what Paul says in these, just these few verses. And he communicates the reality of describing what takes place as A mystery. He's like look, the goal is not for you to figure it out lest you be wise in your own eyes. I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. It is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with him and I will take away their sins. I think in an essence, what is so significant for us to realize is Paul's is saying, look, I realize that there are things and mystery that exists in those things, but here are the two things that are absolutely essential that you and I need to take home from Romans 11, verses 11 through 24. Number one, God always keeps his promises. And I know that might seem somewhat mundane, like, okay, yeah, sure, we know that to be true, but think about it in the most difficult moment of your life. What promises is God keeping for you? How has he reassured you that he will never leave you or forsake you? How often is he communicating and reminding you that it's not your sufficiency but his that navigates the most darkest and difficult of circumstances? How often are we reminded that the promise of God that his strength is made perfect in our weakness? How much do you and I willingly celebrate that we are weak and don't have it figured out, and that we need the sufficiency of God's grace to be evident in our lives. How often are we vulnerable to be willing to communicate that we have made a mess of things, and yet the grace of Jesus Christ is transforming us in innumerable and powerful ways for the glory of God. The promises of God will never fail, because God always keeps his promises. And I think secondarily, not only does God always keep his promises, but God always pursues the lost. There's always a concern in the heart of God for those who don't know Christ, that are convinced of their own self-reliance and self-righteousness, that there is self-deception embedded in our culture, that we think we know more than we really know and that we don't really need God. I guess the question is, is are we grieved by those who don't know Jesus? Or have we discarded them like the Gentiles discarded the Jews? Have we just said oh well, at least I'm in. That's not the gospel. Because I think the gospel is this. Saved people are changed people, and changed people long for lost people to be saved people. Saved people are changed people. And changed people long for lost people to be saved people. Say that three times fast. I would say it, remind ourselves of that every day. Saved people are changed people, and changed people long for lost people to be saved people. I would pray in our hearts that in the darkest moments we would have hope in the sufficiency of Christ to do what we can't even imagine he could do. But I would also pray that our hearts would be overwhelmed with a desire for those we know in our lives that don't know Jesus to know Jesus, because there is no greater hope for our lives and for the world around us than to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we do just entrust ourselves to your kindness. Lord, we realize that it is the kindness of God that has led to repentance, that somehow in some way by your generosity, your your extravagant love dispensed and communicated to the world, but also applied to our specific lives, help us to remember what not only you've saved us from, but what you've saved us for And in the process of that, God, would you just fill our hearts with a hope that we cannot manufacture, that we can't just somehow in some way grit our teeth and and just decide that we're going to be hopeful people. But God, that you would give us the gift of hope because we're so convinced in the truth of your word and convinced of the, the reality and the significance of what you can and are doing. God, I just ask that you would give us a bigger picture of you. Help us to stand in awe of your greatness that we might value you above all things, that those who have been rescued would long to see the rescue of others. For your glory, we would ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.